You may be seated. Let us offer a prayer for illumination before we read the word today. Eternal God, we, um, we often only think about the things of this world that catch our eyes. But we ask that your spirit would illuminate for us deeper truths. Your word tells us that all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Teach us your word that it would pierce our hearts, renew our minds, and satisfy our souls. Amen. Well, today's scripture text I've selected from 1 Peter chapter 1, and let me just preface quickly to say that this passage is is deep. (laughs) It's rich in meaning, and it's dense with insight. So let's just jump right into it. This is 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5, and then skipping to verse 13 through 25. Peter writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. By his great mercy, he has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who are being protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. English teachers, that might be what you call a run-on sentence, but that is what it is. Picking up in verse 13. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Discipline yourselves. Set all your hope on the grace that Jesus Christ will bring you when he is revealed. Like obedient children, do not be conformed to the desires that you formerly had in ignorance. Instead, as he who called you is holy, be holy yourselves in all your conduct. For it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. If you call on him as Father who judges all people impartially according to their deeds, live in reverent fear during the time of your exile. You know that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your ancestors, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without defect or blemish. He was destined before the foundation of the world, but was revealed at the end of the ages for your sake. Through him you have come to trust in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are set on God. Now that you have purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, so that you have genuine mutual love, love one another deeply from the heart. You have been born anew, not of perishable, but of imperishable seed through the living and enduring word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord endures forever. I thank God for his word. Like I said, there's a lot in that passage. It is rich, it is dense, and if you need a passage to to read this week, to meditate on this week, this would be a good one. Um, If not the whole book or the whole letter of 1 Peter. But let's focus in on a a few points of it now. So Peter is offering this letter as an encouragement to early first century Christians living in what is now modern-day Turkey. And he is encouraging them to essentially keep up the good fight. He knows things might be hard for them, but keep up the good fight. And he does this by trying to keep them gospel-focused. 
Let's look again at just the first few verses. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Immediately, Peter begins by directing his audience to praising God. You know, in in sports, when an athlete is just getting exhausted, when their body's tired, or maybe their individual or team morale is fading, you can see it in their body language. You know, what happens? Well, their shoulders start to slump, their head starts to hang down, and they just start to look at the ground. But a good coach will rally his or her team by getting them to stand tall and to take their eyes from looking down and take their eyes and look up and reorient them. And a good coach will remind the team why they are in this fight and why should they continue to fight. And I think that's what Peter is trying to do here. He continues, "By by God's great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead and into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who are being protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Peter first, right off the bat in in his letter to them, reminds these early Christians, as we too need to be reminded, of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Remember what God has done by his mercy and grace for us. He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. God, in his great love, in his grace and mercy, has given us new birth into a living hope. What we have through Jesus' victory over sin and death is new life. And this new life is a gift if you see what Paul or Peter writes there, it's a gift given to us by God. God has given us new birth. And if we have a new birth, that implies that, well, if there's a new birth, that means that there was this previous other life. And that can be sort of confusing because, you know, the obvious question is, how can someone be born a second time? In fact, that's the same puzzle that Nicodemus was trying to figure out when he was talking to Jesus in John chapter 3. He asked Jesus, how can someone be born a second time? I mean, that, that's a good question, right? That is a logical question to ask. But Jesus' response to Nicodemus was that he wasn't talking about some form of physical reincarnation, of a, you know, where one physical life had lived and then died and then was reincarnated into so, to something completely, you know, a completely new physical life. The new life that Jesus was talking about was a spiritual life and of a spiritual birth. But I want to make this point this morning to say that just because Jesus meant a spiritual life, a new spiritual life, does not mean that it wasn't something real. Sometimes we place too much emphasis on what we can touch and feel to say that that is real, but and nowadays the word spiritual can have a lot of different meanings, or it can mean a lot of different things to us. People may even describe themselves as, well, I'm spiritual but not religious. Well, what, is, what does that mean? And spiritual can sometimes have a negative connotation, like when it's referring to some type of mysticism or you know, kind of a weird imaginative hocus-pocus or a feelings-based religion that can be manipulated by whatever someone chooses to think up. You know, maybe when they say, well, I'm just, I'm spiritual, not religious. 
Certainly those types of beliefs are all around us. They're prevalent in today's world, but they don't reflect true Christian belief. The spiritual life that the Bible talks about doesn't equal pretend or imaginary belief that is detached from reality. It is talking about life on the soul level, that you are more than flesh and blood and tissue and bones and chemicals. All of that is part of, you know, the mechanics of our physical life, but you and your life, your being, your existence is more than that. It's more than materials. And really what I what I think the Bible tries to get us to understand is that our spiritual life, our souls are actually more real than the physical. Because the physical dies. Later in our passage, Peter even quotes from Isaiah 40 when he says, All flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls. But the word of the Lord, that endures forever. The material of this world is is limited. It's finite. It's mortal. It withers. So what about our spiritual lives? What about our souls, the seat of our consciousness and being, well, that's something real. And there's something different and unique about it. Peter spends, spends part of this passage uh, contrasting the physical with the spiritual. And he says we have a new birth into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who are being protected by the power of God through faith. There is such a thing as the eternal. And your spiritual faith, Peter says a couple verses later, is more valuable than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire. And Peter again emphasizes the difference between the physical and the spiritual when he says, you know that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your ancestors, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without defect defect or blemish. So just kind of a a side question here. Why is gold so valuable, just in general? Why is gold so valuable? Someone might answer, well, it's it's a precious metal. Okay, well, what's so precious about it? Well, it's shiny, it looks pretty. Well, why is it shiny, why does it look pretty? Well, part of that is because gold doesn't really tarnish or corrode or rust and As Britannica Online told me, it is durable to the point of virtual indestructibility. As far as earthly things go, gold is about as imperishable as something can get. But yet, notice what Peter says, that we are not bought with perishable things like silver or gold. We are bought with the blood of the land, with the blood of Christ. And even though our objects of gold may outlive us, they won't last forever. In fact, these things, they really only hold any kind of perceived value to us while we're alive. After we die, what good is gold to us anyway? The value of gold itself fluctuates every day. It's it's a part of the market and the system. There's nothing inherently meaningful about it. At best, It's simply a useful or profitable material on earth. 
but nothing more than that. But there is something that is meaningful and much more valuable than gold, and that is your faith. And your faith is a gift of God for salvation. Salvation for your soul that extends to all eternity. And one way that we are reminded of this new birth that Peter talks about is through our sacrament of baptism. That's what this this bowl over here represents, this water. It represents our baptism, which first and foremost points us to God's faithfulness and love for us, and it assures us that we belong to Him for all eternity. It signifies the beginning of our new life in Christ, and it points us to the assurance of eternal life. You know, our lives in Christ are not just about some future heaven. Our new life in Christ has a very real, present reality for us today because Jesus changes everything. He removes from us the weight of sin and of our old selves, and he calls us to continually live in God's light here and now, every day. And we will get to this more in just a bit, but for now I want to make a few things just kind of crystal clear. First, the good news of God's love, of His grace, of His mercy displayed and given to us through Jesus Christ preempts everything. The gospel always comes first. And the gospel should always lead the way for the church. Both us collectively the, and as the global church, but also for each and every one of us individually as members of it. As followers of Jesus, the gospel should always lead the way for the church. The gospel is the origin and purpose of our new birth, and it's the origin and purpose of our living hope, and thanks be to God. So now let's talk about this living hope that Peter mentions. My question is, why do you think that Peter adds the word living in front of hope? Why not just say that in Christ we have hope? Because, you know, that would not be a wrong thing to say. That's, that's fine. But why does he add the word living hope? God has given us new birth into a living hope. And I don't think Peter means this carelessly or is simply adding it in to, you know, add some fluff to his, his uh, letter. I think he's using this word living very intentionally. And we even see it later in his letter when he talks about God's living word. And he describes Christ as the living stone and us as living stones when he says uh, in chapter 2, verse 5, like living stones, let yourselves be built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. God has given us new birth into a living hope. Listen, this hope that we have in Christ is not abstract. It's not just some ideology. It's not merely some theoretical or perfunctory concept. It's not just words that sound good. The hope we have in and through Christ is real, and it is life-giving. The living hope we have is dynamic. It's not static. It's supposed to be vibrant and energetic, not bored, passionate and enthusiastic, not complacent or apathetic. It's lively, not dead. This hope lives within us. 
And our hope, this living hope, is in a risen Christ who lives. And as followers of Christ, we have reason to step, to walk, to run, to jump, to dive expectantly into the life that God calls us to live. And this brings us to what I want to focus on in verse 13. In verse 13, it begins with a word that should trigger things in our mind, as we've said before, and that word is therefore. So essentially, as Peter just described, because of God's great mercy, in which he has given us this new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, therefore, prepare your minds for action. Discipline yourselves. Set all your hope on the grace that Jesus Christ will bring you when he is revealed. Peter's saying is to be in Christ is not merely an intellectual concept. It's a new way of being and living, and it sets each of us in motion. It points us forward. He says, first, prepare your minds for actions. And, you know, English translations are great. Obviously, we can read them. We can understand them. But they don't always quite capture everything that the original text has. The literal Greek phrase for prepare your minds for action is Gird the loins of your minds. What does that mean? I am really glad you asked. Because I found a helpful instructional graphic on the internet, and this is from theartofmanliness.com. Yes, that is a site, theartofmanliness.com. Oh, it cut off the top. Oh, this one's fine. How to gird up your loins. Okay, so let's talk about this. I even brought the pointer today. So, as you can see in this first square, in the first century, in in old days, you know, men wore tunics, you know, that would extend to basically man dresses, and the tunic wouldn't allow you to do heavy labor or fight in battle, necessitating the girding of one's loins. So, step two here. First, hoist the tunic up so that all the fabric is above your knees, and this will give you mobility. All right. Three, gather all the extra material in front of you so that the back of the tunic is snug against your backside. Moving down. Once the excess fabric is gathered in front, pull it underneath and between your legs to your rear. This feels much like a diaper. (laughs) Next, gather half of the material in each hand, bring it back around you to the front. And finally... Tie your two handfuls of material together, and you're all set for both battle and some hard labor. Go forth, be ye men, and gird up your loins. So if you need some helpful graphics, men, of how to gird up your loins, theartofmanliness.com. It's a thing. So there you go. But Peter, in 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 the Greek, in the literal, it says, gird the loins of your minds. Wait. How do you do that? What does that mean? Well, to gird up your loins was a fairly common expression back then. It's similar to us saying, you know, it's time to roll up our sleeves. You don't actually have to physically roll up your sleeves, but you know what that means, right? You're about to do work. You've got to kind of prepare yourself. It's, it might be, you know, like saying, better buckle up or get your game face on. You know, if it's a coach, you might say that. It's a phrase that just meant get ready. Prepare yourself for what's ahead of you. To gird the loins of your minds meant to, as most English translations put it, prepare your minds for action. 
you're not just a spectator. You're not called to just sit on the sidelines or be a bench warmer. Is anyone a big fan of the Olympics? Anyone? A uh, few head nods. Okay, Doug raised his hand. All right, thank you, Doug. Me and Doug and, and Kimber are the Olympic fans. Well, so they've started the Olympic trials for the Team USA to see who's going. And I've been watching uh, a few of these trials already. I just think about these athletes and how long they have to prepare, both physically and mentally, for, for their sport. And they've been preparing for years, maybe even most of their life. But especially this year. You know, the Summer Olympics were supposed to be last year, but with the pandemic, they had to postpone it a whole year. So that added a whole other year of training and preparation. But I think about these athletes now as they are in these, you know, final events that determine if they're going to make the team or not. And how the ones that do, this next month for them is going to be a time of intense focus and preparation to compete on the world stage. They have to really focus on preparing their minds as well as their bodies along, you know, they have to just get in that right frame of mind. I mean, what's that like to know, I'm going to go to the Olympics. I'm going to represent the United States of America and, you know, be on worldwide television in my sport. You got to kind of prepare your mind for something like that. And it takes discipline. And that's where Peter goes on to say next. He says, discipline yourselves. Or some translations say, be self-controlled or be sober-minded. He's saying, check your mindset. Be aware and conscientious about why you're here on this space rock called Earth and why that really matters. Don't get so caught up and distracted by all the things that don't really matter, but be clear-minded and focused on the living hope that you have in Jesus Christ. Be gospel-led and gospel-focused. Setting our hope on the grace of Christ, it changes our hearts, it changes our minds, our desires, and it changes our actions. God's grace works on us from the inside out, and if our hope is in Christ, we then long to walk in God's ways and not our own. We turn from our former ways, or our former sin and our selfish wants, and instead we are made new to conform to the image of Christ. And God desires something unique for his people, and that uniqueness can be expressed in the word holiness. And that's kind of finally where Peter goes in this passage. Peter quotes from Leviticus 11, where God instructs the Israelites, Be holy, for I am holy. You may have heard it said before that, you know, to be holy means to be set apart, but what does that really mean? And I think it would be accurate to say that to be holy is to live your life in the grace of God as a reflection of the image of God. Holiness is living your life within the grace of God as a reflection of the image of God. Because God is holy. God is holy because of his righteous nature and character. And as we surrender to God's grace, as we submit to God's will, we reflect his image. We reflect his holiness, which sees its greatest fulfillment and love for others. And we don't do this independently. Holiness cannot be divorced from God's grace. True holiness cannot exist without the work of Christ. Holiness 
is gospel-led and gospel-focused. So I'll wrap up today with this. The message for you this morning is the gospel. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. By his great mercy, he has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Whether you've been a Christian for 60 years, six years, six days, or maybe not yet, the ultimate message for us is the love and grace of God in Jesus Christ. For those who have placed their trust in Christ, let's consider Paul's words to gird up the loins of your minds. Prepare your hearts and minds for action. Get your game face on and set all your hope on the grace of Christ because in Christ we have a living hope. I know that um, our church leaders are preparing for the next few months ahead. Uh, the, you know, the pandemic, as everyone knows, has caused us to hit pause on a lot of things, um, even reset a number of things. But we are hopeful and excited for the ways in which we can serve God and love one another as we ramp things back up and kind of kick off again in August. And I hope that you will consider how you can participate in God's ongoing ministry through His church. We're preparing for renewed discipleship opportunities and mission and outreach opportunities, uh, children's and youth ministry programming, facility improvements, and more. And like I mentioned uh, a few weeks ago, there's, there's all sorts of ministry areas, prayer teams, meal teams, fun and fellowship, connections, all sorts of things. But as a church, first and foremost, let us commit to being gospel-led and gospel-focused in everything that we do. And may you be gospel-led and gospel-focused in everything that you do. So let us gird up our loins and pursue holiness. Prepare our minds and hearts for action as we set our living hope on the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Amen.